You're listening to a podcast from Red Sea Church, a community of faith in Portland, Oregon, whose mission is to draw to Christ, develop in community, and deploy into culture. We're going to continue our time of worship by having a, a prayer together, and as we've stated before, as Though I'm uttering words and praying, I invite you to pray along um, with me. Let's pray to the Lord. Lord, you have made known to us what is of first importance, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised in the third day in accordance with the scriptures. This event is real and is the epicenter, the center, the heart of the gospel that deals with our guilt, our shame, and our fear. Each day, each one of us here struggles with the destructive and sometimes paralyzing realities of sin in a, in a variety of ways. Lord, we know that we all struggle with guilt we know that our actions are not what you desire them to be. We do things that we should not do, and we don't do things that we should do. And we often substitute our own selfish desires for your good intentions for us. But Lord, we also know that through the generosity of the gospel, you have not left us in our guilt. Because Christ died for our sins, we are now and forever innocent before you. you. Your word clear, clearly tells us that in Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of your grace, which you have lavished upon us. Lord, we also know that we struggle with shame. We know that there is something very wrong with us. There is various battles raging within us that have to do with our acceptance, both before you and before other people. We know our relational dysfunction and our sense of rejection, both real and imagined. But Lord, we also know that through the generosity of the gospel, you have welcomed us into your eternal family with you and with others. And with you, we are always accepted. We are always significant. Your word clearly tells us that in love, you predestine us for adoption to yourself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of your will, that you, that, to the praise of your glorious grace with which you have blessed us in the beloved. Lord, we know that we struggle with fear. There are many things outside of our control that threaten us whether adversarial people, authority figures, spiritual forces of evil, or even those intangible things such as luck or fate. But Lord, we also know that through the generosity of the gospel, you have defeated your enemies and our enemies so that we can know and experience freedom, security, and confidence in you. Your word clearly tells us that we may know what is the immeasurable greatness of your power toward us who believe, according to the working of your great might that you worked in Christ when you raised him from the dead and seated him at your right hand in the heavenly places, 
far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but the one to come. Lord, we know that through the generosity of the gospel, you have replaced our guilt with innocence, our shame with acceptance, our fear with power. May these truths not just resonate in our hearts, but may the Holy Spirit enable us to experience them as realities in our lives now. And it's in your precious and glorious name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Royce. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, pretty sure I met most everybody, but if not, my name's Chris. Uh, I'm going to be leading us through the Word this morning as, we, as we're gathered here. Um, and so, uh, just as we start today, well, we've made it finally, you know. Today, yeah, we're wrapping up our series through Genesis. So we started uh, like six weeks ago or so. We started up with, with chapter 12, and we titled this series, uh, The Promise. And as we've walked through these last six weeks and we've walked through these chapters of Genesis, we've seen God continue to reassure and affirm a promise that he made to Abram uh, when he called him out of the land of Ur into the promised land. So he started in chapter 12. He said to Abram, I'm going to take you and I want you to go to this promised land that I'm giving you. And when you get there, uh, I'm going to do lots of things, but I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to make your name great. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. Then again, in chapter 15, uh, what happens is that he, he gives him the promise of an heir, the promise of this child that's going to come, uh, this belief under the stars. Is he goes out and takes him and says, if you can count the number of stars in the sky, this is how great your people are going to be and how great your nation is going to be. Um, and because of this, because of his belief in that promise, he was counted as righteous. And then later on in that chapter, chapter 15, we see God telling Abraham, telling Abram that he's not going to be able to uphold his side of the promise. And so God says that God himself is going to uphold the promise. He makes a covenant with Abram. He has Abram slice all these animals in half and lay them out one half across from the other. And then he makes Abram fall asleep. And God himself walks through that covenant as smoke as a as a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch, symbolizing that if this promise, this covenant isn't upheld, then the burden of that, that consequence is on God. Then in chapter 16, God reassures Abram again. He renames Abram to Abraham and Sarai to Sarah, giving them a new identity in God, uh, reaffirming the fact that nations will come from you, that they will be exceedingly fruitful, that kings are going to come from them, and he gives them a sign, another sign. He gives them the sign of circumcision. Then last week, as we talked about a little bit in chapter 21, the baby Isaac comes. So this, this, through this child, this promised one, I'm going to build your name and I'm going to build your nation. And so just these five separate times, even over these last six weeks, we've seen that God has, has made this promise. He's called Abram into this obedience and then he's continual to say, hey, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. Walk faithfully before me. I'm going to do this. This is going to happen. And so uh, he's over and over again just trying to reassure Abraham that, that God's promise is sure, that God's promise is trustworthy, that God's promise is, is good. And he's stretching Abraham and growing him over this time. You know, Abraham, he doesn't get it right every time, as we've talked about and as we've seen. Uh, Abraham is a great example for us of somebody who struggles in that process and, and struggles to be faithful to the promise that God has given him. But God is also reassuring to Abraham of God's divine grace for him, 
the loyalty that he is calling Abraham into to have to God and that God is going to be loyal to Abraham, the blessing that Abraham is going to have in his life, the prosperity and the, the growth, and also the blessing that is going to come through Abraham to the world and to the nations. And so the, the author of Genesis is Moses. And, and what is Moses doing here? Why, is he, why did he write Genesis in this way? Uh, well, he's writing to the people as they're in the Exodus, as they have left Egypt and they're on the way back to the promised land, the same promised land that God called Abraham out of Ur to go to, this land that he was going to give them. And, you know, they're wandering through the desert for these 40 years, and they're like, what the heck is going on? They're grumbling, they're whining, you know, they're like, I would rather go back to Egypt where I was a slave and I was well-fed because at least I knew what was going on there. Uh, but what, what God is doing using Moses in this is he's, he's trying to tell them and reassure them over and over again that this wandering isn't pointless. I'm taking you somewhere where we're, there's a purpose behind why we're doing this and where we're going. I'm taking you to a promised land that I have affirmed that I'm going to give you. Then we come to chapter 22. And it gets all weird. <laughs> so uh, if you'll stand with me as we're going to read uh, Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 19. And the, the words are going to be up on the screen here. And um, as we read it, it's, it's a long little section. So if you, if you have difficulty standing or if you need to sit, uh, feel free. I can sympathize with that. So uh, don't be ashamed. <laughs> so Genesis... Um, Chapter 21, uh, as we talk, no, sorry, 22, uh, 1 through 19, and says, After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and rose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come to you again. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. And he took in his hand the knife, the fire, and the knife. And so they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. Then they came to the place of which God had told him. Abraham built uh, the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand, took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. 
As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. Let's pray. Uh, Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, the truth that is in here. Um, And and even in the midst of these difficult stories that seem mind-boggling to us, God, we know that you are working. And so as we are here this morning and we're sitting under the authority of your word, open our hearts, help us to be um, attentive with our ears, to, to, um, to be stretched and to be grown, and that you would be the one speaking. We thank you in your name. Amen. You may be seated. So, crazy story, right? Um, you know, we, as, as we're reading this even, we have a special position here. We, we know how it turns out as we're reading it. And, and even in the midst of that, we're like, are you kidding me? You're, what? Sacrifice the son? This can't be real. No, no. Uh, but it, it, it's, it is. It's in there. It happens. We have to take it at its word. Uh, but in, in the midst of our special position that we have here, seeing how the story is going to kind of play out and what's going to happen, Abraham did not have that luxury. He did not know how this was going to turn out in the end. He, he, he was like, what are you doing? Or did he? Did he know how this was going to turn out? So the, what happens here is it starts in verse 1. It says, after these things. So what, what things is it referring to here? I think that it's referring to all of what we've just been walking through over this last six weeks, these promises, these reassurances, all these things that, that God has been doing. But even specifically in, in chapter 21, um, it talks about the birth of Isaac. So these things, this promise has been fulfilled. You've been given this child, this, this promised child that I'm going to give you. And then Ishmael is sent away. And so there's being a distinction made here is what these things are talking about, I believe. He's making a distinction that it's not through this child, Ishmael, that you tried to shortcut the promise through. It's through this promised child that I have given you, Isaac, that I am going to multiply your name and I'm going to make a great nation. And so uh, then what we're going to do here as we walk through, I think that there's three blocks that we can look at this in. There's the test, there's the sacrifice, and there's the promise. So first we're going to look at the test. Now, when you think of a test, just in general, uh, I don't think that we like tests. You know, one of the like, most prominent nightmares or fears that people have is that they have to take this test and they're totally ill-equipped or unprepared for it. Uh, and so just personally on that level, just think about it. But even more so, how much do we wrestle with the fact or the idea that God tests us or that God would test people in general? I mean, it's clear here in the text that God, God says, after these things, God tested Abraham. And then we see again <clears throat> in the book of Job, I think that's the one that gets pointed to the most often, uh, that God tested Job. Not, maybe not directly, but it, there was an argument or debate happening between God and Satan. And Satan was basically saying, I bet I can get him to curse you. And God's like, no, he's going to stay faithful 
And ultimately, what happened to that is God allowed Satan to test Job through all these horrible things. He lost his whole family, he lost his wealth, his riches, he was covered in boils, and his friends cursed him and everything, but he still remained faithful to God. And then even in the New Testament, you could say, as they were, as Jesus was with his disciples out on the boat, and he, he, well, he wasn't on the boat yet, but he walked out across the water to them, and then Peter stood up in the boat, and he looked, and they, they see him, they're like, is this a ghost? What? And Jesus says, come out to me and walk on water. It's crazy, right? Never before, other than Jesus, when they had seen it right then, had somebody, a human person, walked on water. And so Peter gets up and he, you know, it's, it's, it's like a test. Do you believe me enough that you can walk out to, to me on this water? And he gets out and he starts to walk in and then and he gets a little scared and he starts to sink. And so there's these, there's these examples of testing that happen in, in the scripture. And I think that there's a reality is that tests still happen today. And so I think that we wrestle with that fact of, of being tested by God, and we, we don't like it. But um, what God does here is he has an intimate interaction with Abraham. He calls him specifically by name. And so he doesn't just say, hey, you over there. He says, Abraham, I'm going to give you an instruction. I'm going to talk to you. So, and what he's doing here is he's testing, testing his faith, but he's, what we see in Abraham is, is something different as we're going to walk through this. Something different than what Abraham has done before. In all these previous times that we've talked about of, of God giving his promise and reassurance and everything to Abraham, something different happens here. So we start with the command. What does God tell Abraham to do? He says, take, go, offer him. So what, he's like, well, take what? Well, take your son the one that you love, the one that you treasure. You know that promise, kid, that I said I was going to give you, that you waited over 20 years for me to bring to you? Take that one. And, and what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to go. Where, well, where am I supposed to go, God? Well, you're supposed to go to this land of Moria. Well, as we, as we saw in here, Moria is a three-day journey on donkey up a mountain. And, you know, for... For some of us in here, that might not seem like that big of a journey. You know, I'm in my mid-30s. I think I could make a three-day journey to, to Moria. You know, maybe not so well now in my current position, but maybe a little better a few years ago. But Abraham is, he's past the century mark here. He's over 100 years old. So this is no easy task to get on a donkey and take some people and all these things and travel up this mountain to sacrifice his kid. Um, and so, and then what's he supposed to do? God's directing that too. He says, offer him your promised son, Isaac, as a burnt offering. Now, in, I mean, in our culture today, a burnt offering, that seems like a weird phrase. And, you know, we might have misconceptions about what it is, but Abraham knows what a burnt offering is. In, in the land that Abraham was from, the land of Ur, uh, it was a common pagan ritual to produce sacrifices, and not just sacrifices, but human sacrifices. And then in the land of Canaan, where he was, the promised land, the Canaanites, human sacrifices was a common pagan practice. And so he understands what God is asking him to do here. And so for us, so we can have a clear understanding, a, a sacrifice, a burnt offering, this common practice, what they would do is you wouldn't just like start a fire and throw somebody on there. You would take a knife, you would cut the, the throat of the sacrifice, you would dismember it, and then you would build an altar, put all the wood on there, start the fire, and place the offering on the fire. 
And this just wasn't a little fire that he had to build. The burnt offering would be completely and fully consumed by fire. So at the end of it, the only thing that's left would be a pile of ashes. Like This is the extent of what God is asking Abraham to do here with his son Isaac. It's, it's bloody, it's gruesome, it's unimaginable that he would do, ask him to do something like this, especially to this promised son that he's, he just told us in chapter 21, that through this one, your name is going to continue. So just think about that. That's insane. But I think subtly in the background, maybe even in the form of a whisper, what God is saying here is, do you believe? Do you trust my promise? But as we've seen here, there's, there's clarity in this instruction that God has given to Abraham. You know, all the other times you can maybe say, well, it was a little ambiguous. God said he was going to give me a kid, but he didn't say it was going to be through my wife, Sarai, or God said he was going to do this, but he, he didn't say specifically. God is abundantly clear here to Abraham. He says, take your kid, the one that you love, names him specifically, go up to that mountain and sacrifice him. And you know what a sacrifice is. That is what I'm asking you to do. It's, it's unambiguous. There's no questioning. There's no way to shortcut around this option here that God, this, this directive that God is giving to Abraham. So what is Abraham's response? Well, all the other times that we've seen Abraham respond, he's tried to shortcut it. He's tried to wiggle around it or like, okay, or be indifferent or lackadaisical. What we see here is different this time. Abraham's response is immediate. He rises the next morning, gets all his stuff together, gets his son, gets his two men, and he goes. Now, he, albeit, was a little disoriented in this process. It says he woke up in the next morning, and he grabbed the guys and the donkeys, and he got on the donkey. And then it says that he cut the wood and got all these things. And so I think that Moses is intentional here in the way he's writing this out. He's not saying that, God, that Abraham was just obedient and rose and did it, which he did, but he was, he's wrestling with this reality of like, are you serious, God? Like, okay, I'm going to do this, but I, I don't know. This is, how's this going to work out? Um, and so he gets up, and he gets all his gear, and he gets going. He takes his son, he takes these two men, and they go out and they start this journey. And then after three days, he sees this mountain that he's supposed to go up to. And so then what does he do? He separates himself and Isaac from the two men that he was taking with him. Now, it doesn't say specifically in the text why he did that, but I could imagine that Abraham, being 100 years old, and his teenage boy that are going to be going up on this mountain, these men that he's taken with him are part of this family group of, I, of Abraham's. You know, maybe they're not his direct children, but you know, a servant or whatever. I would imagine that they would probably try and stop him in this process, you know? Uh, just like if, if I took some of you and I was going to go do something like this with my child, I would hope that you would try to intervene, you know? Uh, so th- I believe that he's separating himself from these two so that, that what God has told him to do is going to happen. And so as he, he goes up on this mountain, um, and, and what does he tell them as it's subtle, what he tells them as he leaves, but I think it's significant. He tells them, I and the boy, we're going to go up there, and we're going to worship, and then we will come again to you. So I think what Abraham is expressing here, even in the subtlety of it, he's, he's confident that both of them, him and Isaac, are going to return. They're going to come back. And this seems a little mind-boggling, you know? God has been very clear and unambiguous. Take him up and sacrifice him. Cut his throat, 
pull apart his body, burn him on a fire till there's nothing but ashes left. And then Abraham's like, but I and the boy are going to come back to you after that. That's craziness, you know? But he is confident in God's provision. He's doing something different here. He's confident in that promise that God has made to him. He's not shortcutting things this time. So there's this difference that we're seeing in Abraham than what we've seen thus far. Uh, And there's also a reality of the difficulty of this trek. The, the mountain that they go up when they leave these two men, they can't take their donkeys. The, the mountain is too steep even for a donkey to go up. And then uh, Abraham, what he does, he, he's not able to carry the wood for the offering up there. He puts it on Isaac. His teenage son is carrying all this wood. And think about how much wood you would need to burn up a whole body. That's going to have to get pretty hot, you know? And so he, he, he puts it on his spry young child, Isaac, the stronger and quicker of the two to carry it up the mountain. And then as they're going up the mountain, I think that Isaac also understands a little bit about what's going on here. He, he understands what a burnt offering is. He's, he's been around this culture as well. And so Isaac questions his dad. He's like, uh, hey, we got the fire and the knife and we got the wood. Um, where's, the, where's the offering at, dad? Well, what's going on here? <laughs> well, Isaac, uh, and so he, he, he puts that question forward. But what does God, what does Abraham do? Abraham says, God will provide for himself. God's going to provide for himself a burnt offering. And I don't know about you, but I mean, even with my kids, sometimes I give them a direct answer, something simple like that. And they're like, it's not good enough for them, you know? But what, what do we see here? What's Isaac's response? That he's like, oh, okay. He's quiet, humbly walks along, you know, maybe not humbly, but he's probably got a big old pack of wood on his back because he's trying to climb up this mountain. And they go and they keep going up the mountain. Um, but what Abraham is expressing here in his response that God will provide for himself, he's expressing in the midst of what this clear directive he's gotten from God is that he has an absolute trust in God. That's come a long way for Abram. And then he's expressing hope here as he said, that I and the boy will return to you, and expressed hope. Hope against hope, as it said in Romans 4, that God's going to do what he said he's going to do. Even if I take this child up there, I'm still going to be a great name and a great nation, and there's going to be blessing through this family. And dare we say, even prophecy of the future, that he had a foreknowledge of the provision that God was going to make. Or he believed in such a way that even if God had him go through this process of fully sacrificing it, that God would be able to raise up this child again, and then both of them would still walk down the mountain after that. It's crazy, right? So that's the test. That was the test that we, was laid out before him. And so now we get to the sacrifice. And there's not you know, a ton of words here in the sacrifice, but there, there's two things that we can see here in the sacrifice that Abraham follows through with is obedience and provision. And there's twofold obedience here. There was obedience on the part of Abraham and obedience on the part of Isaac. So Abraham and Isaac, they get up on the mountain and they, they, they get up to do their thing. And Abraham, what he does as soon as they get up there, it doesn't say there's any messing around. Abraham builds an altar and he lays out the wood and he binds his son Isaac, you know, possibly so that the last minute he won't get up and run away. But Isaac is this young spry teenager. He's the one that just carried all this wood up the mountain he could easily be like, what the heck are you doing, dad? No, I'm not going to lay on that pile of wood for you to burn me up. Uh, But what did he do? Isaac humbly submitted to the will of his father in full 
obedience. Crazy, right? I have a hard time even getting my three-year-old and 18-month-old to listen to me when I call them and say, hey, come here. What do they do? They take off the other direction. You know, they don't listen. (laughs) Rebellious kids. Think about it as a teenager. I mean, there's some teenagers maybe in this room or on the way to being a teenager. Do you listen when your parents give you a direct order most of the time? Yeah, right? Shrugging those shoulders. I'm not sure. I don't want to say it here. But he, he has full submission is what Isaac does. He fully submits to his father's will. Um, and he does what he's told. And then imagine that. Imagine being in the position of Abraham. You have your son on this altar. You know what's going to happen. And you're, you're raising the knife up. Uh, right? Really, God? Are you kidding me? This is the promised one. Really? Anytime now. Where are you at, God? And then provision. Joyous provision. God calls out to Abraham. Abraham. Abraham! He's like, here I am. And well, test complete. God says, because you have believed, I know that your faith is real. You've passed this test. Uh, And this active faith that Abraham has had, that he's been tested and he's been walking and he's been growing, um, has grown strong and it's resulted in obedience to God. It's resulted in I'm not going to shortcut anymore. I'm going to do it your way, God, because I'm realizing that your way is better. Your way is better than mine. Even at a high cost, you've asked me to take this this promised blessing to myself and my wife, but not only that, it's a promised blessing that you said you were going to give to the whole world through us, and I am willing to follow you even at a high cost of sacrificing that. Well, we don't like this idea. We don't like that idea of, of sacrifice. We don't like the idea of a test. Uh, specifically, when, when God calls us to be tested in those ways. But it's, it's a reality that we can't get past. You know, it's clear within Scripture. Um, but what he's calling Abraham to is faith that is active and that it's exercised. You know, like, uh, I, was, I spent a lot of my time as an athlete, and you can have the hope and goal of, you know, say running a marathon and and doing these certain things. But unless you ever practice at it or train at it, you're going to get to the start line and you might make it like 10 miles, you know? Uh, You might not even make it to the the wall that everybody talks about at 20. Uh, And so uh, faith is something that is supposed to be exercised. Faith is a muscle. And if you aren't using that muscle, it's going to atrophy, it's going to shrink, and it's going to become lifeless. You know, I, you all know I was up here last time. I had crutches. I had surgery. I mean, recently I was doing some exercises, trying to rehab and get some strength back. And I look down at my legs as I'm wearing my short runner shorts, and you can fully see them. Um, and I looked down at my legs as I was doing these exercises, and there was a dramatic difference between the size of my healthy leg that is compensating now for the other one and the one that had been cut open and had been not used for almost three months. One, you know, it's a nice, good, strong leg. And the other one's shrunk up a bit because I haven't been using it. There's been atrophy. And so what God is, is, is giving an example here is that faith is something to be exercised. But he's also had what he's done with Abraham is he didn't just jump straight from promise, baby, sacrifice. You know, we didn't, that's not how it went. 
there was a scaled growth that happened over this time with Abraham. He called him out of the land of Ur into the promise of Canaan. He continued to challenge him. He showed him the stars under the sky that I'm going to make you this great nation. I'm going to bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. I'm going to make this promise with you that I'm going to walk through. I'm going to be the one to uphold it. I'm going to rename you even if you try. When you try to shortcut, I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to draw you back. And then I'm going to make another covenant with you. I'm going to give you another sign. And then I'm going to give you this child. It's all this that happens over generations, over time and time and time. Promise to baby over 20 years. And then after baby, you know, 15, 16 years, he's a teenager and they're up here on this mountain doing this. And so it's, it's a process. God is walking you through, walking us through a process and calling us to faithful obedience to him and a gracious response that he has to us even in the midst of that process. And, well, this joyous, this joyous provision that he had. I bet there was no greater sight for Abraham to see than that ram caught by its horns in those bushes. Are you kidding me? I mean, like, I, you would just have your kid on this altar that you were getting ready to cut open and burn up, and then, boom, over there, God's like, hey, there it is. That's what I'm going to give you instead. Uh, that substitute that he gave for this sacrifice that he called him to. It's, it's amazing. It's craziness. And then after this, uh, God calls to Abraham again, and he makes a promise, an oath to him. In verses 15 and 16, it says, And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the, possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So it says something a little subtle here as well. What God says is, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. So, I think that's a little weird. Like, okay, by myself. I think this is the first time that God has said something like that, though. By myself, I have sworn. And there's significance in this. There's a unique authority that God is expressing in this oath and this commitment to this family here. Uh, God, God's not a liar. God can't do anything that is unjust. God cannot do anything that is false. He's true and he's trustworthy. And what he's saying here is, I'm swearing by myself. There's nothing greater that can, I can swear by in this world, in this universe, than by myself and by my own authority. And that's what God's swearing by here. And so he's, he's saying that his provision is ultimate. Okay? And then there's, um, he, he goes into this talking about offspring. You know, maybe it seems a little confusing. Offspring, offspring, offspring. Well, there's, there's some intentionality here. We've got to dig, dig a little bit. There's offspring that he talks about that is plural, so he's talking about this blessing that's going to come to the nations and this blessing that's going to come through me. It's a blessing of prosperity and, and abundant growth that's going to be available through his family line to a multitude of people. But then there's also a singularity to that offspring. The singularity that is Isaac, this child that he is going to make his name great through. He said that's why he separated Ishmael and Isaac. There's no confusion here. It's through this one child the singular person, that then I'm going to carry on this arc, this trajectory of a single line that is pointing to a single king who will possess the gate of his enemies. 
So the gate of his enemies, that seems a little, you know, weird to think of here, but I think it points back to Genesis 3.15. After the fall and in the garden, Adam and Eve had rebelled against God and they decided to do it their own way. And God was walking through with Adam that, okay, now you're going to have to toil and work the soil in order to provide for your family. And Eve, you're going to labor in childbirth and have to deal with that. Sorry, ladies. (laughs) And then he says, to the snake. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. What this is pointing to is a time when Satan is going to be crushed. There's going to be evil that is going to be defeated and that it's going to come through a one singular heir of this family line. And through this one, one single heir, that all the nations will be blessed through this one line. As it says in Galatians 3.16, we can put it up on the screen here, that now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Then in Galatians 3.29, it says, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heir accordance to the promise. This is pointing to the the reality that Jesus is the offspring, the one offspring that is being talked about here, that is is Abraham's one offspring. This is is a crazy story, isn't it? That God would take Abraham on this journey, he would give him this promised son, and then he would say specifically, take him, go up there, sacrifice him. It's crazy. And God provided that, that Isaac did not have to be sacrificed. He provided something. But What's even more appalling than this craziness of this story is that ultimately the seed of Abraham, the one offspring, did die. Okay? Um, he was sacrificially offered up that all who believe by faith will be covered by the grace of this one offspring and be reconciled to God. All shame would be removed, all fear would be removed, and all guilt would be covered. So in this story, it was subtle as we kind of talked about it, but there are so many parallels in the story between what is happening with Abraham and Isaac and what is happening between God the Father and Jesus. So there's obedience to the command. Abraham was obedient to the command that God gave him, and Isaac was obedient to the Father. Well, Jesus is the Son of God who was sent for a purpose to the world, and he was fully obedient to that. He had full submission to the Father in the process of it, even at the highest cost to himself. He didn't balk at the Father's command. He didn't balk at the responsibility that he was given in the task that he was to accomplish in this world. Jesus was a substitutionary atonement for us. God provided this this joyous provision of a lamb so that Isaac could survive. Jesus came down as the amazing substitutionary atonement for us, in the heart of man, there is, there's all wickedness, as, as Scripture says. You know, we, we want to try and believe that people are good, and at, at the root of it, we're going to do the right thing. But ultimately, we're selfish people. We, we choose our own way. We rebel against God. We want to do it how we want to do it. I'm think, <laughs> thinking about my, my oldest child recently. He's, um, he's gotten into the idea of, of being selfish and expressing that he wants to be selfish. So last week was Valentine's Day, and we were going out for... Um, tacos, you know, romantic Valentine's Day getaway. And, and we're all packed up in the car, and Theo's like, 
but I want to have pizza. Well, everybody else is on board here, and we're going to tacos, kid. And he's like, but I want to be selfish. <laughs> it doesn't get any more clear than that, you know. We, we tend to look at kids, and we think this, they're these innocent and great, perfect things. But, man, it's not any more clear than in the life of a child, the selfishness of man. You know, they, they're only concerned with themselves. They only want to do what they want to do. They don't really care about anybody else. Um, and, and that's why Jesus had to come, is because we're only concerned with ourselves. At the root of it, we just want to do what we want to do and what's best for us. And so, but Jesus didn't. He submitted to the Father's will. He didn't think first of himself. He thought of what God had him, the Father had in for him to do. And then ultimately, as he was sacrificed and his body was up on the cross and he was beaten and broken, the, the gruesome, bloody reality of a, of a human sacrifice that Abraham identified with, Jesus went through that. He was whipped 40 times. His, his back was reduced to hamburger meat. It was just bloody and dripping. And then this crown of thorns drove into his head and then hung on a cross with spikes driven through his arms and through his feet. And then that wasn't good enough. They took a spear and thrust it through his chest to make sure that he was dead. I mean, think about that. It's insane. But that wasn't the end for Jesus. Just as Abraham and Isaac joyously went down the hill because of God's provision in victory over death, Jesus rose victorious three days later, victorious over death so that we can have new life and victory over sin in our lives. And so because of Jesus and because of what he did, we are now a part of this family line. We're grafted in. We're heirs to the promise, just as, as uh, Isaac is part of this promised family line. And then there's blessing and there's hope because of what Jesus has done. There is also struggle and difficulty. I mean, I'm not going to downplay that. Life is hard. Like, I, don't, I have no doubt that this was a hard thing for Abraham to have to do. Even in his immediate obedience, it was still a difficult task. But uh, just for Jesus, going to the cross was the most difficult thing that he could have ever done. You know, that ultimate separation that he had from the Father. Just think about that. From the beginning, the Trinity was there. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. God, Jesus and God the Father had had continual union and communion and interaction with one another. But as Jesus hung on that cross, he was separated from God because God could, the Father could not have anything to do with sin and unrighteousness. And so as he bore the weight of the world upon himself, the, he had to be separated from the person that he was closest to and he had always had communion with. How hard would that be? It's insane. But there's beautiful freedom in knowing that just as a loving God keeps his promises and is in control, just as God provided an option and a substitution for Isaac when they were up on that mountain, God provided Jesus for us so that we can come to him. And so, uh, just similarly to God, how God has asked Abraham here, I have a few questions for you to think about. Will you respond in faithful obedience. What does that look like? Faithful obedience to what God is calling you to. Will you cling to the hope that is found in Jesus and cast aside all idols? Now, our idols can look like different things to different people. You know, it could be your spouse. It could be your kids. It could be your job. It could be a hobby. It could be your money. Anything like that. I mean, it, as I've wrestled through this, some of this health stuff that I've gone through, you know, I became a Christian in college, and um, before that, I ran 
competitively all through high school and was pretty good and was able to get a scholarship and go to college and I ran through college. And when I became a Christian, I, I had this, tried to have this idea in my head. I was like, oh no, I'm not, I'm not a runner. I'm a Christian who runs and all, the, all this thing. But uh, ultimately, as I walked through life after that, it became very evident to me that while running and exercising was a good thing and it had lots of benefits to myself, it had ultimately become an idol. It was something that I had put above relationships and community. It had been something that I put above, um, on par or even above God of, of seeking, sacrificing to be able to do this thing that is a good thing. And so I think what we also need to understand is that our idols doesn't necessarily mean it has to be a bad thing. You know, like being married is a good thing. Having kids is a good thing. Working a job is a good thing. Having hobbies are good things. But when we elevate those good things to the position of God in our lives, or even to above God, that's when it becomes an idol. And it becomes not a good thing anymore, you know? And so, will you cast aside your idols? Will you respond in faithful obedience? And so we also have to understand that this is something that's not going to happen immediately. It's not like we're going to wake up tomorrow and be like, no more idols in my life, I'm good, God. It's a process, There's this process of sanctification that God is bringing us on, just like he brought Abraham through this process of waiting for the promise to happen and continuing to challenge him and guide him and bring him along this path. But the truth is that we still need to be moving forward. God called Abraham into forward movement, continue to seek after me, continue to walk, continue to trust in these promises. But at the same time, we know that we're not able to do it on our own. Okay? It's not something that we have innately inside of us to be able to, to do this, to, to believe by faith, to seek after God. It's through the work of God in us, through the Holy Spirit, but it's also that we are totally dependent upon God and his provision and his sacrifice and his grace. Amen? Right? That's beautiful. It's, it's not about you. God has done it. It's about God. Okay? And so that is why we come to these tables every week. So we come and we... We remember and know that we are not perfect, that we don't always get it right, but that God is perfect, that God fully provides, and that God is fully faithful, right? That's great. And so we come to these tables knowing that we are in need of grace, clinging to hope, and striving to be a faithfully obedient people who love God above all else. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word that challenges us and stretches us and draws us into you. We thank you for Jesus who was that ultimate provision so that now we can be with you that we don't have to be separated anymore. Gosh, we can just rest in that, Lord. I thank you so much. And, and, and even in the midst of talking about this and this, the difficulty of a sacrifice and the reality of what it is, and you're calling us into more, you're calling us into faithful obedience to you, but you do it in measure. You don't, you don't call us to sacrifice our child um, after, after just the next day. God, you, you scale our growth. You scale our growth as we seek after you. You stretch us and you continue to call us into more. God, help us to be a people who are faithfully obedient to you, that are seeking after you in your word and worship and in community. God, reality is that we can't do it on our own. You are at work inside of us, but we're also good to do it as a people. So I thank you for this church. I thank you for home communities and ways that we can grow and develop and, and be stretched and supported as a community. 
And so we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for this day and this time that we got to sit under your word and we got to worship. It's in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Red Sea Church. If you would like more information about Red Sea, including more audio messages, please visit us at www.redseachurch.org or contact us at info at redseachurch.org.